This is Donald Trump, hopefully your favorite president of all time, better than Lincoln, better than Washington, with an important announcement to make. I'm doing my first official Donald J. Trump NFT collection right here and right now. They're called Trump Digital Trading Cards. These cards feature some of the really incredible artwork pertaining to my life and my career. It's been very exciting. You can collect your Trump digital cards just like a baseball card or other collectibles. <laughs> Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Second run. Yes. You listen to the sick or not? The sick and wrong, the world source for anti-social commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for anti-social commentary. I'm on your host, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Hello. Kate Rambo, I tried a yes. new uh, vegetarian burger place yesterday. There are many, it's many called, in your area. It's called Burger She Wrote. That clever, yeah. I remember walking past Fergus. She wrote it was styled out. I said to you that that's got to be good because if there's a line going out of it, you know it's going to be good. Well, when you were here in October, I think that was when it first opened. Because remember, there was like a huge line. It was like a grand opening or something. Yeah. Well, it's funny because so we walked. I live in like the West Hollywood area, kind of like uh, Melrose, and so we walked like down Fairfax and up Melrose and up Beverly, and there must be I don't know. 15 vegetarian burger places oh it's hip at the minute there there's even one in hollywood called burger bitch <laughs> yeah burger, i like it i like burger bitch they're just getting straight to the point you're a bitch here's a burger i haven't been to burger bitch there's no moo there's mr charlie's which is the one that's on um what's that's yeah, on la brea and it looks like it looks like mcdonald's but it's it's, it's all vegetarian there. Uh, underwhelming, I would say, about Mr. Charlie's. Yeah. And these places are all like impossible burger spots. So they're not vegetarian restaurants per se. They're just, you go, they got impossible burgers, and they had like cheeseburger, impossible burger, like double double cheeseburger, impossible burgers. And sometimes oh, they have burger. like a vegan chicken sandwich as well. Um, and that's it. That's, that's it. It's, uh, you get a single impossible burger or a, a double uh, cheeseburger. Or you get a chicken sandwich and and then fries and tater tots. And that's fries. typically, that's fries. all you get. Oh, my God. I'm hungry already, dude. Well, we went, my favorite one, I think it's your favorite one, too, is Monty's. Monty's. Oh, yeah. my God. Monty's. I don't know if it was because I, I don't, like, have burgers all that often. Although, I must say the McPlant is pretty good. We've got the McPlant over I haven't had that yet. I know you guys don't have it. Um, that's pretty good. So it's not something I like crave, but that Monty's just, I was half cut. It hit the spot. And then it was my first time having tater tots as well, which yep. are amazing. That's the thing. Monty's does French fries and tater tots. You get like half and half. So I, I got half and half and you're like, what is it? A tater tot? I've never had a tater tot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and I, I remember it's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> well, it's mind blowing to Americans because we have them in like fucking elementary school, you know, lunch at the cafeteria. It's like you get shitty fucking tater tots. You know, it's I like, am well aware of what tater tots are. Thank you, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, but it's such like a me. given here. Like, I don't even think it's anything. But you were just like, this is magical. What is this magical, magical fruit? 
Like, <laughs> they are delightful. And uh, they, I saw actually an advert. Lovely. That they're, they're lovely. They're coming to the UK. Something like Bird's Eye is starting to put out data tots. I don't know why it's taken like the company so long to figure out that Brits would like tater tots. So it's like we're the land of potatoes. Give us you, them. You guys love chips. Some of the best chips I think I've ever had, French fries I've ever had, has been in uh, the UK. Right. Take it back, right? Because chips and French fries are different things. We definitely make the best chips in the world. There is no denying. There is no country that can do ch- chips what like Britain Belgium? Can. Well, I was about to say, they're fries then. Oh, they become fries are... when you step onto the continent. And then you've got all the mayonnaises to choose yeah, from. Belgium. God, oh. so good. I am hungry. I want yeah. fries. But Monty's, you know, I think out of all the burger places is my favorite. But they're all this fucking same. They're all the same. And there's so many. It's such a thing right now. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if it is like that in other U.S. cities. San Francisco, not so much. There are some impossible burger places. But L.A., it's the thing here. You know, I mean, they've always had a lot of vegetarian restaurants, though, in Los Angeles. You guys um, are your health nuts. Well, are there, the vegan, are there vegan restaurants, like a vegan vegetarian restaurant in Carlisle, no. like in North of England? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not a single one. No. <laughs> I thought there was What's in Glasgow. What's funny is, though, uh, yeah, those vegan places in Glasgow, there's yeah. tons. Um my favorite is the uh, 13th note is all vegan. I love it in there. But no, there is not a single vegan. Re- I'm in the north of England, day. Our blood is made from gravy. There's no <laughs> vegans up here. And if they are, I feel sorry for them because they're definitely not getting their micronutrients. Do you, it's tough what, enough being vegetarian. What would the, 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 the crew, the people you work with say if like a vegetarian restaurant opened up down the street? Would people be like, oh, that's for puffs? I think they would be happy that I'd be the only person in there. <laughs> like, Kate's finally got a restaurant because she's so difficult. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm going to enjoy my hummus. Well, okay, if you went to Spoons, could you get an Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger? Oh, that's a good point. Maybe you could. I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I've eaten at Spoons because I'm a bit of a snob. I only ever get uh, chips when I'm in Spoons. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is weird, the proliferation of all these... Uh, the, the Impossible Burger joints, but also just all the vegetarian restaurants in L.A. Uh, definitely was not like that when I became a vegetarian in 1985 at the age of 10. Oh, here you come. <laughs> yeah, could bringing out your lifelong vegetarian card now. But you're not well, a vegetarian because like, I chose to stop eating meat because I love animals. And I don't think you can sa- stand there and say you love animals whilst eating them. You clearly don't love animals because you can fucking eat them. Whereas you were just like, I just don't like the taste of this. You Terrible. know, it was at my brother's bar mitzvah in South Africa. I remember okay. clearly I had a, a Lisa Simpson vegetarian moment. Like it was, I was walking around, you know, in my little bar mitzvah suit. I would have been like 10 years old. And the, the thing, they had like these big, it's like a big gala affair. Like, so it's like you had the bar mitzvah and then it's all outside and tents and everything. And they had this like spit roasting lamb big mm-hmm. lamb kebab thing and then like big meat and i remember just standing there looking at it and it was kind of like getting one of those things like david don't eat me you know? <laughs> no i mean i was looking at it and i was just i was filled with disgust i was like i don't even want to fucking eat that bloody fucking carcass it just it was gross and i already wasn't a huge fan of meat i just didn't eat meat very often 
I mean, yeah. That, my family's a, a carnivorous family. I mean, we, I mean, they uh, ate a few vegetables, but it was mostly very meat heavy, uh, chicken, you know, everything. And so, I was kind of just grossed out. I, I would eat chicken occasionally. I didn't like red meat very much. It just wasn't it wasn't my thing. I didn't even like hamburgers. I just thought they were kind of gross and like the consistency. And so when I, I just remember that moment looking at the the, the big hunks of meat mm. being spit roasted, I was like, yeah, I'm, that's fucking gross. Like I'm not gonna. I do, do it. miss lamb. I'm gonna. I, I miss lamb. They can't replicate science and time is on our hand on our side. In ten years' time, all the vegetarian food uh, will be like fucking amazing. But they well, ha- can't do lamb. And they can't do um, sausages. Oh, I miss a banger in the mouth. There's you no miss vegetarian a sausage. Banger in the mouth? Is that what you're saying? I miss a ba- I miss a banger in the mouth. <laughs> that sounds pretty sexual. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's <laughs> Tobias from Arrested Development. <laughs> Wait, so you miss a good, a nice hot banger, like in the I mouth? Miss, <laughs> I miss a banger in my mouth. I sure do, man. <laughs> sausages are some of my favorite, and I had to give them up. <laughs> so, so you're like a nice stiff. Banger in your mouth. In my mouth, I do, and I miss it. I miss That's having the... a banger in my mouth. I need to remix that. I miss a banger in my mouth. Like, I think, yeah, we got, we got to get that um, remix. But yeah, I was grossed out by it, and I, I stopped. I was like, I'm not eating it. It's like I'm not eating. I eat fish, and I still eat fish to this day. So I guess I'm a pescatarian. But I was like, I'm not eating it. And I remember my mom was so upset. Like she was so concerned. She was so concerned that I wasn't gonna get the pro- you know the proper protein I need, and I'm not gonna grow up, and I'm, my bones are gonna be very brittle. And so, and, and the rabbi, he he didn't seem to care. My, I remember the rabbi's like, "Oh, he'll grow out of it. Buy him some Kentucky Fried Chicken." Like he, the rabbi didn't even really think about it. But my mom was very concerned. So, I remember we um we had a uh, a childhood like a child psychologist that we went to due to Jeffrey's wayward behavior as a youth. <laughs> Jeffrey, he was a bad kid. He was. He used to run away from home. Like he was smoking by the age of like eleven. He was, he was sucking cocks behind the school gym. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he would get caned at least once a week at the South African public school. Like he told what he told the uh, principal. The principal was like, you had to have, I think it was like three fingers of your neck, your hairline couldn't be longer than like three fingers. Jeffrey always grew his hair. We always had a mullet. He would never cut it. Um, barely, he rarely wore his uniform, wouldn't tuck in his shirt. Like he just didn't give a shit. And, Good for uh, him. You didn't, being well, caned means getting stoned over here, by the way. They call it getting, oh, getting caned. Yeah. Well, in South Africa, they would fucking bend you over and take a cane and smack you with it. It's crazy. Did that you ever get do caned? That. Well, it's fucking insane. They didn't, do they do that in England? Uh, I think it was fucking outlawed by, uh, like what the eighties. But I mean, this is South Africa. Did you ever get caned? No, I was a good kid. No, so you're, a, you're a nerd. Well, yeah, I was. Just a, I, I was also a good kid. I liked school. You know, it wasn't wasn't a thing. Like, and and I used to wear the uniform. I actually kind of didn't mind the uniform because it was easy. I just like I get up, put it on, and go straight to work. I didn't have to think about what I'm going to wear. But Jeffrey, yeah, I know. they had to take Jeffrey and put him in a private American school. Nice. <laughs> yeah, because he was that bad of a kid. <laughs> so anyway. We went to the, to the doctor, and my mom, like, you know, was just like, my son, he won't eat red meat. And uh, the doctor's just like, that's fine. There's plenty of other food he can eat. You know, there's other ways to get nutrients. And, like, my uncle was a vegetarian, so he gave her, like, the greens cookbook. And she got super into it. Started making me all these 
a lot of the kind of gross dishes actually that I never ate. Even my dog would eat them. But anyway, um, it's a lot easier now to be a vegetarian. I mean, you, Ooh, you yeah. don't even, there's no reason to eat meat unless you really like it. I, at this point, with a plant-based meat, you know, and the laboratory-growing meat, you're in the yeah. pot, like in the Impossible Burgers, I don't mind the Impossible Burger. I'm just like, I don't like that kind of food anyway. Like, I'm not a big fan of burgers. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I wouldn't normally eat that anyway. But when I do, I was like, oh, you know, this actually tastes good. I don't know if it tastes like a meat burger. Like, yeah, I'm a bit dubious to that because it's been so long since I've had like a real burger. I don't, I can't remember what it tastes like. I can yeah. remember what lamb tastes like though. Oh, I miss, I miss a kebab, a cheeky kebab. Well, anyway, this, this, uh, this show, uh, we're going to talk about a man named Father Yod who started a cult called The Source. Yeah. It was like a vegetarian health, like health conscious cult. Which, you know, thinking about it, I would have been down with Father Yod's cult. Like in the 70s? I think, yeah, I think I probably would have, like, hooked up with them. Why not? They sound pretty groovy. Well, they lived in, in you know, we're going to get into it, but they lived in a mansion. There are all these hot, like, chicks that would walk oh, around yeah. naked. They all did drugs. They ate vegetarian food. Like, to me, Jammed. I was like, this actually is not a bad idea. I could, I could get into this. Um, this week is uh, part three. It's a, we did a, a trifecta of topics here. A trilogy. Um, a trilogy. Uh, the first, first part is uh, we did uh, Peter Ivers. We covered his brutal death, um, possibly by the hands of the Acid King. Part two, we did the Acid King and uh, David Jove and the Mars Bar Party, which uh, I really do want to believe that that happened. I really do. All week, I've been asking people at my work how they pronounce nougat. And you know... I would say the majority is split in the north because people say nugget. There are people who say nugget in the north. Oh, so they do. Okay, so there are people who know how to pronounce it properly. Well, it's not properly because it is a French word. You ask us to say nougat. You know, we've incorporated a lot of French words, you know, like menage a trois into our (laughs) lexicon here in the U.S., but we pronounce them properly, like nougat, okay? It's nougat. There's a T. There's a T. Nougat. It's not a silent T. It's not nougat. It's nougat. It is nougat. <laughs> Bonjourno. Um, Bonjourno. Yeah. So in uh, part three, we're chatting about Father Yod and his vegetarian cult, The Source. But first, before we get to that, let's talk about another cult that you should join. The cult of the sick and wrong Patreon. Amen. <laughs> uh, we've been releasing a lot of Patreon exclusive content. A lot. I'm not even exaggerating. There's a lot of content there. And if you're not on Patreon, you're going to have FOMO, a bad case of FOMO. Um, oh, yeah. This week, actually, we have a special guest on the, on the second show, none other than John Steele, telling My us all, all the about guests. the time he spent Christmas Eve with Gordon P. Bogalki, <laughs> as well as his uh, experience with the dating app Hinge. You know, it's a, yeah, he goes into detail about it um, and about how long it has been since he's had sexual relations with a, with a woman. A real um, life woman. Yeah. So you can find out all about that on a sacred, it was like, a, you know, it's kind of like a, an Oprah interview. Barbara Walters-esque. Uh, just you're really getting steel to open up, you know? <laughs> so you can find out about that on the second show only. And it's and literally $5 a month. That's it. That's all, that's all you got to pay, five bucks a month to get access to two shows a week 
and to give uh, your your undying love and support to your two favorite podcasters. So sign up for the Sick and Wrong Patreon, patreon.com slash sickandwrong. You get access to the second show, and for a few dollars more, you get access to our bonus mini-sode, um, Overkill. Kate's been working for a couple weeks now on a very special holiday um, edition of Overkill. So yes, is it coming out on Christmas Day, or is it coming out? Yeah, I'm going to... Uh, for the people like me who don't celebrate Christmas and have the, don't mark the occasion, I'm releasing it on Christmas Day so you might enjoy it. Because she loves Christmas so much, she's going to miss <laughs> this. She's going to release this special on Christmas Day. So, And also at that level, if you're getting, uh, for a few bucks more, $10 a month, you get access to the Sick and Wrong archives. So you get the first 10 years of Sick and Wrong on uh, all on SoundCloud playlists. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. Keep it sticking wrong. Help us support the show. We do appreciate it. Here's a quick teaser that we're hoping will persuade you to sign up. And then uh, let's chat about a cult of vegetarians. Hey, Sick and Wrong listeners. If you're not currently a Sick and Wrong patron, you might be missing out on special moments like this one. Were girls allowed to be in the class? Girls weren't allowed. Yeah, yeah they weren't allowed. In the lagoon. And so we went to this lagoon to collect those fucking water samples. And I'm th- and I do remember I did get a shoulder rub from him. I remember he'd come up behind you and like put his hand on your shoulders Magic and fingers. go, Ooh, you're doing good, young boy. Or <laughs> and so but I don't I like I he never like went beyond my like lower than my shoulders, which, you know, in retrospect Ten years later or whatever, when you learn his fate of being arrested at school and stuff, I think to myself now, what what did I lack? Like, what was I? Was it the bowl cut? Was it what? 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 What was? Did he not find alluring on me to stop at the shoulders? Wait, right. did Gordy ever ask you for like a special sample from the lagoon? No, that's <laughs> why you know it. It is a little bit of a blow to my self esteem later. You know, later in life that I wasn't. I I wasn't asked. Not even asked. Besides just the upper extremity touching. For only $5 a month, you can enjoy these special moments. A bonus news story, extra phone calls, and an hour's worth of outtakes every week at patreon.com slash sickandwrong. Sign up today, support the show, and keep it sick and wrong. Don't you ever... So just like the two episodes that led up to this one, the final part in a three-part series, a trilogy... This is a story that could only happen in L.A., which is the land of fruit and nuts, which incidentally was all that was served at America's first vegetarian restaurant launched on the Sunset Strip by Father Yod and one that would be the center of yet another weird American cult, just to add to the long list of weird American cults. Was was that the first restaurant or is that the first vegetarian restaurant in L.A.? It's the first vegetarian restaurant. Oh, like full vegetarian restaurant. Because I know like some other cities, because there was a period like that. We'll get into it. But the late 1800s it became a bit of a fad. And then it, uh, there yeah. were health restaurants. But I don't know if they were considered vegetarian. No, this was the first. Because even his first restaurants weren't vegetarian because he would serve like organic meat. This was the first one where it's like you're just getting raw vegetables. That's oh, wow. it. Yeah. 
So Father Yod, before he became daddy to this cult, and um, also a daddy to 14 so-called wives, which we'll get into more later, he started out life as James Edward Baker, and he's born on the 4th of July, 1922, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Do you want to just shit on Ohio while I've mentioned it? Because you love to shit on Ohio. You got anything to say there about is, Ohio? There is a rivalry between Michigan and Ohio, but in, th- in this thing? instance... You know, they, they, they brought a vegetarian prophet was originated there. So I'm going to give that one to Ohio. It's a free pass. Okay. Yeah. I know I always say sun signs mean jack shit in the grand uh, scheme of astrology. But this is for my astro babes because they are out there and they are listening despite what you think, Dave. Jimmy here, he's a cancer. So he's the crab. He's ruled by the moon. Probably the weakest of the water signs, not the best one. He's often emotional, hard exterior, soft, delicious inside. But like all water signs, they're incredibly moody. So good luck to anyone who has to live with a water sign. But because their moods are ever-changing, kind of like the tides, they can make themselves masters of manipulation. And that's going to come into play later. You know, Kate Rambo, I'm I'm not against astrology. In fact, I'm totally willing to talk about it when it helps me to get laid. Get laid. Yes. I think about 90% of men, straight men, (laughs) use that as a weapon. It's like, I will feign interest as long as I get to see them titties. (laughs) Well, Dee, you have to spend a lot of time with me, a moody water sign. So I'll show you some titties just to make up for it. Jimmy's going to grow up fast. He probably grew up fast, actually, because mobsters, under the direction of Capone's rival, Roger Tahuni, murdered his father, who was a police detective. But, they, you know, it's like the 1920s and the 30s. It's mob rules. His mother, Cora Baker, she raised him alone. So he's a Depression-era kid. He's raised on a diet of, like, dandelion salads and making one egg last two weeks and some change. Stuff like that. Not much is actually known about his childhood, but he showed particular interest and a passion for nutrition, probably because he wasn't getting much, and he became super athletic too. So he is kind of like you, you know, he's like at 10, he's making a conscious decision about his health, and then he's getting jacked. So you're very similar. Well, I wasn't getting jacked at 10, but I remember I was- later on. Well, I was kind of a doughy kid. Like I was kind of a, a, like a fat little kid. And then when I stopped eating meat, and kind of eating a bit healthier, I definitely started losing weight. And then, yeah, then I started doing like Taekwondo and Judo and things like that. So yeah, I became pretty athletic. Similar. Obviously, he's fatherless. So this meant throughout his whole life, he's going to be drawn to father figures. And a man named Paul Bragg became his first mentor. Paul Bragg is the first to open the country's health food store in downtown LA in 1921. So this is the first of its kind. It was next to his natural medicine clinic that ran ran alongside the college. So it's all intertwined together. Mid-1920s advertisements for this store that ran in the LA Times said like a mixture of kind of snake oil and sound health advice because there are examples saying like 45 pounds of fat removed with blood wash. And then there'd be other ones saying, come and hike with us. I think I'd rather have my fat removed at blood wash than go hiking with these people. Well, they still do these snake oil type uh, cure-all. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and fat remedies. I mean, you see it on Instagram all the time. Yeah. Paul Bragg, he's a legit businessman. He's not a cult leader, but he's certainly a figurehead for a health movement that had long been picking up steam in California, but especially in Southern California. 
nowadays the jokes about avocado toast and smoothies are like Annie Hall old about the cuisine in Los Angeles, but it predates even this. Since at least the mid 1800s, SoCal has long been associated with health. Basically, California was the Italy of America, where oldie timey doctors would send you to warmer climes in the winter for your health. This continued long into the 20th century because like last week we mentioned that David Joe's family when his dad got lung cancer they're sent to Arizona from Illinois um, to like so he can recover there obviously he died but you know uh, the move. rabbi the rabbi suffered from uh, sinus issues like his whole life My asthma. Well, yeah. asthma and sinus issues and nasal polyps but no he had all these issues like from England and when he moved over here and in Michigan and all that and so when he got his first rabbi position in phoenix arizona he said he's never been able to breathe so freely you know in in the he's like the climate was great i mean it was hot as hell he's like but the climate was great for my allergies for my allergies yeah <laughs> <Can> imagine <laughs> obviously all these sick people that are being sent to california they're vulnerable and there are all types of scammers and shysters who would pop up with their pills their cures and plates of mash yeast and get rich quick schemes in the 1946 book, Southern California Country and Island on the Land, written by Carrie McWilliams, he writes, by 1880, the whole foothill district around um, Sierra Madre and San Gabriel was one vast sanatorium. I probably said both of them wrong, did I? Actually, you said Sierra Madre. Pronounced perfectly. Yeah. Oh, did I? Sierra Madre and me. San Gabriel. Look at me learning. McWilliams labeled it the cult of the body, where health and body awareness often came at the expense of traditional formality and dignity so that means that doing strange and weird things to your body if it promotes health and well-being is so ingrained in californian culture that they set the tone for quackery pseudoscience and cults since its inception and the beginnings you know are fairly innocent but it won't it's not going to stay that way for very long well so in the late 19th century the vegetarianism and just and and health conscious um diets were becoming a bit of a fad and and it gained momentum uh during that period thanks to several influential historical figures upton sinclair you know he unintentionally contributed to the movement when his novel the jungle you know it came out about the meat packing industry and that was uh, what, was like 1906 um and uh the, it spawned both the pure food and drug act and the u.s food and drug administration so people were questioning you know, the uh, the sanitary conditions in which their meat was being butchered and prepared. So a lot of people like, you know, when when he came out with the jungle and depicted the unsanitary practices of the meatpacking industry, a lot of Americans were like, I'm not eating this shit. And they yeah. like they stopped. And then look at uh, John Harvey Kellogg. Well, we should probably do a show on this guy one day. Um, you know, in Grand Rapids, you can go to the uh, the original Kellogg plant and see his house. That guy was another I mean, he was the king well, of yeah. Kellogg's and the creator of cornflakes, but he was weird. Do you know why he invented cornflakes? It was to stop people masturbating. <laughs> yeah, he was. He I'm was not a even joking. Guy. That's what cornflakes are about. <laughs> but he was a strong advocate of vegetarianism and preached its benefits, you know, until the 40s. But it was like probably, I don't know, it was around like the late 1890s. You know, vegetarian restaurants sprung up in New York City and Chicago and Boston and San Francisco. But I mean, these were like, you know, they had vegetarian cuisine, but they weren't like a raw vegan restaurant. Yeah. Um, in 1900, Associates of the John Harvey Kellogg's Battle Creek Sanitarium opened uh, a Los Angeles uh, vegetarian restaurant on 3rd Street. 
Um, but yeah, they I think they called it uh, they they called it the vegetarian cafe at the time. But Kellogg yeah. was definitely a health nut. Yeah, he was a nut. We should maybe cover him one day. Yeah, like I don't mind a I don't mind a bowl of cornflakes from time to time. It's refreshing, but it's not a cereal I could eat every day. They're pretty boring. No, it's just weird. Like, would they just didn't have cereal before that? No, they did have cereal. I mean, they definitely had like shredded wheat and stuff. Like, oh, you know what? I've always wanted to know. Uh, while you're here in American, what is cream of wheat? Oh, it's what when you. It? Uh, it's when you jack off on, a, <laughs> on a, like a shredded wheat biscuit on a triscuit. <laughs> What's no, I don't cream know. of wheat? <laughs> it's, isn't it kind of like grits? Isn't it something like that? I don't know. We don't have grits either. You've never had cre- cream of wheat. I've always been intrigued. You know, I have. I don't think so. I don't know if I don't know if I've ever had that. I, th- I always thought it's like when you yeah you have a wink on a triscuit. We don't have triscuits either. Although oh. I do know she said a triscuit, a biscuit. <laughs> That's the only my mental reference for triscuit comes from the movie Big. You only have to crack open a periodical from the turn of the century to know that people are like gut health mad and they have been for generations. But the health food movement, it really took off in the 20s and the 30s. And Paul Bragg, he's amongst it. He was writing a column of health tips in the LA Times. He had his own radio show about wellness. He did cross-country lecture tours to promote his many, many, many books that are probably very difficult to read. And he led hiking groups throughout Griffith Park, and he would influence countless other fitness gurus, one of them being the main protagonist of this week's show, Jimmy Baker. Bragg also influenced another fitness guru uh, that people may know of, Jack LaLanne. You ever, is Jack LaLanne a celebrity in England? No, but I love his name. He sounds like an American PI, doesn't he? Jack LaLanne on the case. Jack LaLanne was all over the TV. He was the original TV fitness king. Oh, um, he's, okay. Yeah, he said that Bragg saved his life at the age of 15 when he attended the Bragg Crusade in Oakland, California. And then he devoted his life to fitness and health. And uh, he started. Really, he was on that show Amazing Discoveries where that one guy, Mike Levy, would wear the, 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 the Bill Cosby-esque sweaters. And then Jack LaLanne would come out, and Jack LaLanne was like 80, and he was all like buffed out. And he'd come out and be like, here's my juice tiger, and here's the Jack LaLanne-powered juicer. And then it was on that <laughs> show that Jack LaLanne coined the phrase, that's the power of juice. Like he's, yeah, Jack LaLanne was like, a, he was just you know a, a figurehead in the fitness movement. Um, but the company that Bragg started, his family uh, ran, was called Bragg Live Food Products. It was sold in 2019. I was reading about it because I was like, God, this sounds so familiar, Bragg. And the, and the Bragg family, you know, they sold off their rights. They're no longer associated with the company, but they still continue to sell its products they were famous for, like liquid aminos and apple cider vinegar, which I buy oh. every, like probably every time I go shopping at Trader Joe's, I buy Bragg's apple cider vinegar. Oh, cool. So that's yeah. something of him remains. With the mother, it's called. You ever, you ever have apple cider vinegar with, with the mother? We don't have that here. We just have regular old apple cider vinegar. It's supposed to be like, it's supposed to have lots of, I don't know if it's a myth, maybe, but you're supposed to be able to drink it with like cold water and it's supposed to have like health benefits. No, no, I hate, I just can't do apple cider vinegar drinking it. I just think it's, it's fine. On, I have it for salads. That's why I have it. I don't, I'm not drinking apple vinegar. I put it in my smoothies. Of course you do. What doesn't go into your smoothies is the big question in that kitchen. A little bit of everything goes in there. You're like one of the witches in Macbeth. Hey, it tastes good. 
They don't. They don't taste good. Oh, and they don't look good either. <laughs> By the age of 17, Jimmy had graduated early from Chicago's Swedish House of Massage. Uh, but World War II was biting at the heels of young, hunky American men. Jim was currently working a production line job at the Wright plant. He had married the boss's daughter and he lied about his age to join the Marines and go fight the Nazi scum that was running amok in Europe. Jim would go on to tell everyone that he came back from the war with a Silver Star Medal for his role in the Battle of uh, Rennell Island, which was the last major naval engagement between the US Navy and the Japan Navy in January of 43. However, government records disagree with this. But Jimmy is already learning the importance of printing the myth. He's already getting into the spirit of it. He opened up his own baker's gym when he returned back to Cincinnati. He became heavily invested in judo and jiu-jitsu. And by 1948 was considered a world expert. And he won the judo championship that year. I can't imagine there was many people in America doing judo and jiu-jitsu in 1948. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, Did he go to the Olympics or was it just like... A world no, it was, a, it was held in Ohio. <laughs> okay, so they held the world championships of judo in Ohio. Okay, yeah. I doubt there yeah. were that many people. <laughs> yeah. He, in fact, Jimmy is so stacked that in November of 1955, he killed his neighbor with a single jujitsu punch to the throat during a fight over the neighbor's pit bull. Jimmy gets acquitted of all charges with a ruling of justifiable homicide. But once again, I couldn't find any newspaper article or court appearance to back up any of these claims. You know, like, I, I'm sure I, it can happen. I did read about that, though. Like his neighbor was an ex-con. Like he had been in prison and he came out. Yeah. And I guess they used to argue frequently. And uh, Jimmy was taking care of his pit bull and the neighbor thought he was mistreating it. And they got into an argument and the guy like attacked him. So he claimed self-defense. But yeah, he like full on ninja chop them in the throat kill them I mean, usually with stuff like that i like looking through all the old newspaper articles to find like there was so much old newspaper articles on the sauce for instance there is nothing about a jimmy baker being arrested in cincinnati in that time so i don't i don't know if it's like print the myth where he's like yeah and i killed somebody with a single jujitsu chop or if it like yeah it did happen we'll never know yeah he wouldn't be so lucky when in 1963, Robert Ingram, husband of the TV actress Jean Ingram, turned up at a restaurant that Jim owned, accusing him of kissing his wife. Making the one and only comment on the incident, Jimmy said they only had a spiritual attraction, man, fueled by a mutual interest in philosoph um, philosophy and healthy eating. Yeah, fucking right. I'm sure he Eat had a pussy. spiritual attraction with many women at that time. <laughs> Robert didn't buy what Jimmy was selling, and in the end, Jim ended up turning the man's own gun on him, shooting him once in the head after knocking him to the ground with two jujitsu chops. He is convicted of manslaughter, and he's jailed for a few years. He served a fraction of that as well. But before that, before any of that has, happens, he has to get to Hollywood. So he is a murderer, technically. You know, he's killed definitely one person, maybe two. I mean, he fought in the, you know, he fought in the, the Marines, so I'm sure he knows how to kill people. That's true, but it's, um, it's not murder when you're killing them yeah. for the Marines, is it? Not when you're <laughs> that at war. line doesn't get crossed. When you're at war. So he's going to leave with his wife and his first uh, legitimate daughter, Peggy, for the land of fruit and mashed yeast, because Hollywood was holding open auditions for the role of Tarzan in early of 55. 
Jimmy already knew everything about Los Angeles. He had attended every book tour that Paul Bragg had held in Cincinnati. And um, so he decided to move west. They're going to take their bets. He never did land the role of Tarzan. The role instead went to Gordon Scott, who was discovered poolside. And he actually got a seven-year contract uh, alongside his loincloth. You know, Gordon Scott is probably the most famous actor that played Tarzan. Yeah. Um, but what's weird about him is he played both depictions of Tarzan. So he played the character as unworldly and inarticulate, um, you know, as an early Tarzan, where he was just like basically an ape man. But then the later films, they had him play a Tarzan who was very educated and spoke perfect English, which is the original Edgar Rice Burroughs novel. Yeah. So he was the only Tarzan actor, of which there were many, to play both styles of Tarzan. Do you think they'll ever bring Tarzan back, or do you think Tarzan's just done? You know, I loved the one, I, as a kid, I loved the Greystoke Legend of Tarzan movie with Christopher Lambert. Did you ever see that? I don't know if I've seen that one. I've seen the Tarzan. Who was the guy who was Jane Mansfield's husband? That's the Tarzans I've seen the most of. Wasn't that Gordon Scott? Was is that No, not Gordon Scott. Was he before that? Well, I know what. Uh, they brought Skarsgård. Alexander Skarsgård played oh. Tarzan. That, I watched that. It was kind of terrible. And to be honest, if you watch the Christopher Lambert movie, it also doesn't hold up as well. But I did love that as a kid. He was kid. great. He was the Highlander. You know who would be great as uh, Tarzan? The Rock. Dwayne Johnson. He's a little old now, but go back 20 years. I think he would have been fantastic. Who did Brendan Fraser play? Was it George of the Jungle? George of the Jungle. As strong <laughs> as he can be. <laughs> Yeah, George of the Jungle is like the rotundo version of Tarzan. <laughs> His strange cousin. Jim's going to open up a sandal shop on Fairfax. Right, when I first, uh, it's like a, more like a leather goods shop, but he was actually really well known for his sandals. And I was like, how the fuck can he make a living selling just sandals? But he did. He made a lucrative living because he's hanging out with the nature boys. These aren't the Steve-O and Chris Pontius nature boys. And it's not the Ric Flair one either. These are the OG nature boys who would famously feature in one of the most famous pieces of Americana literature on the road by the, the Canuck Kerouac. The nature boys, they're born sometime in the early 1900s. They wore their hair long. Their skin was tanned. They're vegetarian saints in sandals. Their main hangout spot was a health food store in Laurel Canyon that was founded by German immigrants. Uh, I am going to say this wrong. The Eutrophian. Eutrophian. It's Greek. It means good nourishment. It was more a bustling community center where people like Paul Bragg gave lectures on raw food and natural living. The Nature Boys were kind of like a gang of vegans. Like they should totally. bring them back. I don't I, think they've ever left because they were hermits still... as well. Are there still collectives? Like, can I go to a nature boy meeting? I think, yeah, I think you just become a nature boy. I don't think you even have to, like, Yeah, but do they have a clubhouse? Do they have, like, a place that they hang out? To me, it sounds like if I'm like, I'm going to go to the nature boys, it's a bunch of dudes hanging out naked, like a nudist group or something. That's what it sounds like to me. But they, you know, despite sounding like a Ric Flair society, (laughs) they were beatniks who espoused raw veganisms. They're like this vegan gang. And, uh, with the Nature Boys and Beatniks on the East Coast, they kind of paved the way for the hippie movement. Yeah, they're like the OG Yeah, hippies. the OG hippies. 
One notable member of the Nature Boys was uh, Eden Arbez, who was a singer and a songwriter. He would often at perform at the center playing his flute, not his skin flute, like you would imagine, and uh, blowing his own pipes. He even wrote a song for Nat King Cole called Nature Boy, which was such a hit, it was covered by Peggy Lee, Ella Fitzgerald, and even Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra definitely, definitely played his skin flute a lot. <laughs> I doubt he was a, I doubt Frank Sinatra was uh, was down with the Nature Boys, though. Oh, God, no. He hated Elvis. Yeah. He wasn't into it. But the Nature Boys really were nature boys despite the fame of eden they were mostly hermits they dwelled in caves they lived in trees you know charles manson lived in a tree and eden could often be found at his campsite under the l of the hollywood land sign i did try and look up i was like there's a few l's like what what if you went to the wrong l you'd have to walk all the way down it'd be so annoying so you just camped out under the l yeah he was like i'm gonna Here's my camp. You'll find me up there under the L. Which which L, Eden? Which L? At the onset of the 60s, the Nature Boys could be found at local music festivals. They served as gurus and role models to the rebel youth that would soon become known and then eventually feared as the hippies. Jim is at the forefront of this movement. He had divorced his first wife. He was now with his second wife, Elaine. And together, they studied the Vedas and uh, Manly P. Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages, which would become the unofficial Source Family Teacher's Manual eventually in his cult. In print the myth terms, the Aware Inn is painted as the first organic restaurant of its kind. This might not be true, but it did predate the natural food movement, which swept throughout Los Angeles like a wildfire in the 60s. So the Aware Inn was a gourmet health food restaurant that he opened up with his wife Elaine at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was, kind of, it was, I mean, it was kind of groundbreaking, the first of its kind in the U.S., so uh, it, it opened in 1958, and it appeared at the perfect time to capture like the growing interest. So it's like the resurgence once again in nutritional food. But the Aware Inn was kind of cool and upscale. So it was this like stylish spot that opened up in L.A. When Jim and Elaine opened their first restaurant, it was dedicated to meals using fruits, vegetables, and meats that had all been produced without pesticides, artificial fertilizers, and hormones. And, like, that's super radical. It's even kind of radical now, because how many restaurants do you know can boast those claims well, of being they, fully organic? Yeah, this is organic. Here in L.A., that's, that's a thing. Like, most people only go to restaurants that say they're organic, especially the vegetarian restaurants. I don't think there's a single organic restaurant. Actually, I did work in, I worked in probably the only organic restaurant in Carlisle. It was the Israeli one, which funnily enough was called The Sauce. So this whole time I was writing this, I was like, I really want to go back and ask my old boss. It's a weird coincidence. If, uh, if it's a coincidence, yeah. I wonder if he's inspired. So over the next two decades, Jim's going to take all of his knowledge over his free restaurants that would open under like the Aware Inn moniker. So it's kind of like a chain. So he's got the old world and the sauce. The most popular dish at the restaurant, uh, the Aware Inn, was the hamburger named The Swinger, which was ground beef with cheese and chopped up vegetables. You know, it's a, it's a hamburger. <laughs> Soon after its opening, the OG Aware Inn at um, 800, uh, 8828 Sunset Boulevard on the Strip, uh, which I it is still a restaurant. I looked it up. Like he, it's still there. It's still going. It became a magnet for Hollywood stars who wanted to hold on to their health and their good looks. The menu is actually pretty standard for the day. So you've got some fresh squeezed carrot juice. 
You know Judge Reinhold in, have you seen Beverly Hills Cop Free? You know, I don't know if I've, I must have seen the third one, but it's been years. Right, so Judge Reinhold, his skin is orange in that film because his doctor told him to like, you need to start drinking a lot more carrot juice for like your eyes or something. So he went fucking overboard. He's like you with your smoothies. He was drinking a vat of carrot juice a day, so much so that his skin became orange. And he's orange throughout that whole film because of carrot juice. Um, little Judge Reinhold back to you there. So there's brown rice, there's organic burgers, and there's beef stroganoff and veal masala. They're all popular at this restaurant. Well, that was the thing with the Aware Inn. The reason it became so trendy is because it was located like right smack in the middle of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. So you had all the movie stars that would go by, like Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Brando, uh, even Greta Garbo, who they claim, or Baker does at least, that he had an affair with her. Like yeah, older right. Greta Garbo. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm be, I mean, th- you know, this guy got his dick wet. For sure. He got around. I don't think he bedded Greta Garbo. He's not that good looking. (laughs) So I read that Jim would prepare the food during the day. And in the evenings, Elaine, his wife, would co-host. And Jim would drink like a bottle of vodka. He'd go cook for a bit. And then he'd go out and just work the room. So no wonder he was shagging all these birds. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a hotbed. If you know anyone who works in a kitchen, it's just like, it's just a hotbed for shagging and drinking. I've never drank or taken so many drugs in a job than when I've worked in kitchens. It's just, it's like part of it. They party. Chefs are the unhealthiest people you know. They party harder than rock and rollers. Jim was quoted in 1959 saying that he wasn't an extremist, that he aimed to serve well-rounded meals, but without the fats, carbohydrates, and adulterants that you get in most restaurant food. I eat the good stuff, the things that taste nice. His free restaurants were the Discovery Inn in Topanga, where Neil Young and Jimi Hendrix would tune in and drop out to the needle and the damage done. It's now a vintage store called Hidden Treasures, which opened in the 80s. Still there. Have you been? Uh, I have been to Hidden Treasures. That's a pretty cool vintage store. You know, we should go to that one in Topanga. I forgot about that. We should, and when we're in Topanga, I really want to go to where Gary Hinman's house is still there. So we should go and do like a, make there. it a Manson day. The Old World on the Strip, um, which would become the LA chain with other restaurants popping up in Westwood and Beverly Hills. This is now a Mediterranean restaurant called Pie on Sunset. And in 1969, he's now divorced from Elaine because she didn't want a murderer for her husband, and who can blame her? He opens up the sauced restaurant on Sunset and Sweetser. You know, pie is actually next to the uh, the old world. Because I looked it up. The old world, the actual oh. location of the old world, maybe they split it. But the actual location of the old world became a, it's a, it's a bar right on Sunset Club. It became the Red Rock. And now it's called the State. I fucking hate that bar. See, I got confused because when I put it into Google Maps and looked at it, it took me around the back. So I had to, like, you know, click out and go and, like, view well, it from the street. It's kind so of I where. I thought, have they raised it? Well, it's kind of where, like, I think it's, like, where Fountain and sunset kind of converge. Right. And so on the corner, there's like a, a, a Rocky and Bullwinkle statue. And then oh, there's this, I know where we are. Yeah, we walked right by it. It's kind of yeah, where yeah. the, who's that guy, uh, the gay model, that gay actor that was murdered? 
You wanted to see he was murdered in the in the driveway. Oh my god! Yeah, alley. from fucking. Uh, I love him. I forget from his Rebel name. Cars. Sal Minio. Sal Minio. You you were yeah, like, yeah. we have to go by Sal Minio's house. So we walked up there as we were going to the Rainbow, and we walked right by the old, well, the the former location of the old world, which is now called, a bar called the State that I do not like. <laughs> yeah, the State's like um, a ki- what I would say is like a kids' bar. Like if you're 18 or 19, you're going in that bar. It's kind of douchey. Yeah. Yeah. He and had managed to fund the opening of the sauce by charming 35K, which is actually about a quarter of a mil today. Like, this is how, like, affable Jim was. He ha- he charmed a hiking buddy out the money. He told the benefactor that his new establishment would be inspired by the dietary wisdoms found in the teachings of Jesus Christ <laughs> as revealed through the Essene Gospels of Peace. Have you ever heard of this? I'd never heard of this shit. I had never heard of it. I think it's called the Essene Gospels. Essene, sorry. Yeah. Like, I, you know me. I know nothing about all this religion tribe. And if you are like me and you have no knowledge of the part of the Bible where Jesus starts sharing his favorite pinned Pinterest recipes, that's because there is no, and there's none of this in the, the Bible. They were a forgery <laughs> by a philosopher and psychology professor, Edmund Bordeaux Scalizoli. Zikoli. <laughs> Skazizli, who claimed that he had stumbled across the ancient text while searching through the Vatican archives. Yeah, right. Jim's actually a disciple of this Skalizi dude since he was around the age of 17. He's, he's good at picking father figures, isn't he? Well, you know, I think he had a lot of, I mean, he must have been well-read. He definitely had a lot of influences. But it, it, we'll get into it when we start talking about the cult that he developed. But he takes like bits, it's like a hodgepodge of like yeah. different religious texts and philosophers. And it's kind of like what, what cult leaders tend to do. They take other people's teachings and philosophies and kind of mix it all together in this melange and then say it's their own. But no yeah, I mean, sense. he had been studying, you know, the, the work of uh, philosophy and psychology professor Edmund Bordeaux um for a while now. And so what's interesting about Zeekly, he claimed that there were untra- like he found untranslated texts in the Vatican archives where Jesus preached vegetarianism. I really do want to believe that. But I mean, it kind of sounds well, a bit is- sketchy. Is it the Seven Day Adventists? All of them are vegetarian because of like one thing where Jesus said once, like you shouldn't be eating that meat. I mean, I don't know. You can you can deconstruct a text any way you want and pull well, out the, the pieces that, that are do. meaningful to you and support your own yeah. narrative. But these texts were obviously fakes. But it didn't stop his translations from finding an audience who wanted to believe it. You know, and share in his in Zeekly's passion for the raw food lifestyle and equated spirituality with everything, you know, you know, with like a crystal and incense store and all that. And so what was funny is Zeekly was a horny old goat, this guy. Zeekly. He eventually would pick up a 17-year-old at a vegetarianism conference and he started his own commune in California. So no wonder Jim was like, yo, hmm. this is working for this guy. I think I might adopt that practice myself. Yeah. It's all about getting and, that vegetarian ass. <laughs> and like like you were saying, despite the fact it's clearly all fake, it didn't stop the so-called translations from finding an yeah. audience and people believing in the gospel even to this day. So the Sauce Cafe, it's basically built upon this kind of like giant house of cards. Well, aren't all cults, you know? Well, yeah, of course they are. Well, some cults start out very well-meaning, don't they? And it's when they close themselves off from culture, then they become a cult. So well, it's when the megalomaniac takes over. 
you know. Yeah. So he's having one bad acid trip at a time. He's hopped up on Black Betty's and booze, and the sauce opened on April the 1st, 1969. Immediately, it's a hit. We've got Marlon Brando, John Lennon, Warren Beatty and his hot British girlfriend, Julie Christie. They're all regulars there. And yes, it's going to be a third time mention for the film Annie Hall. Because those who've seen it will know this scene, the outside yeah. dining scene, is where Woody is forced to order alfalfa sprouts <laughs> and mash yeast. Which is no doubt probably what they were actually serving at their time. Isis, an electricity aquarian... Their names will make sense later, I promise. They wrote about the sauce in their book, The Sauce, The Untold Story of Fava Yod, Yahoo, 13. And the sauce family said, food was consciously prepared for the highest vibration and served by hip young women and men with long hair who radiated health and serenity. Jim transformed the fireplace in the dining room into a waterfall and he would light candles over it. The melted wax made colorful psychedelic designs on the mantle. The moody blues, Jeffro Tull, or Zen meditation music played in the background. I would hate this place. <laughs> well, you know, but the thing is, you got to give this guy props. It was a very egalitarian operation. You know, yeah. all employees received the same salary. So, I mean, it That's was it. like socialism, vegetarian socialism. And it kind of worked. You know, even Jimmy, Jimmy Baker, would wash the dishes. He considered it a form of meditation. And, uh, you know, it, it, it brought attention. The, the restaurant brought attention to his, like, Eastern-inspired spiritualism that was crossing American culture. Kind of like what mm-hmm. you said last week. You know, everyone goes to India for their spiritual awakening. To well, Bali. But, but, you know, in, in India. But you could blame George Harrison for that. Coming back with his sitar and all that. But that was, that was a thing. It was like it became, it was so in vogue. And now you had the source, which is the epicenter spiritual awakening and 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 healthy lifestyles i could totally see this being huge in the six late 60s oh yeah early 70s especially before like i know hippies are still going strong at this time uh the gym's going to influence a lot of people and the sauce has now made him instantly famous he was running around with a whiskey a go-go go-go dancer a 19 year old (laughs) called robin He's partying with self-proclaimed son of Alistair Crowley, daddy of English R&B, Graham Bond. In fact, one heady story goes that when Jim was driving down the canyon and he spotted Robin hitchhiking, she was headed to where was she going? She was going to uh, 10050 Cielo Drive. The night was August 9th, 1969, because of course it was. Jim picked her up and said to come to the restaurant with him and so Robin wasn't there for the sleigh ride that occurred that night. But anyone who was anyone said that they had a date with death that night. So you've got to print the David Bowie myth there. Either way, Robin married Jim after only three months of knowing him. Good for her. The fact the sauce made it into the popular culture zeitgeist shows how kind of special and popular it was considered at the time. It had a hardcore raw vegan menu, although it did struggle when dairy was welcomed into its ranks in the later years. In Dave Bowie print the myth fashion, it was claimed that the restaurant was making daily sales of 10 grand a day, which is about 40 grand in today's money. And I think, yeah, right. I, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. It was a very hip spot. You had all the celebrities and, uh, you know, and the actors hanging out there. But it was funny. I was reading through, you know, some of the, the menu, menu that they had yeah. the source. And so it was like the aware salad or mother's eggplant. And it's like they had all these names. But it made me think of there's a there's a spot that's actually a very popular spot here. I 
tend to avoid it as much as I can, but it's called Cafe Gratitude. When you were here, we never went to we never went to a Cafe Gratitude. It's a chain, so it's like You've this like really pretentious vegetarian restaurant chain. There's I think there's one Pasadena, there's one Santa Monica, Santa Monica there's one on Larchmont over by me. Um, I think there's even one in the in, there are a couple in San Francisco and Berkeley, but this place, holy shit. Like you walk in there, it is the most smug, pretentious restaurant I think I've ever been. And I've only been there on a couple of dates. Like I'll never go on my own accord. But you look at their menu and they have the same kind of deal. It's like, I am hearty. And that's the tofu scramble. Or I am peaceful. It's the avocado toast. And I've been there. And I'm, I'm seriously, I'm not making this up. You'll be like, yeah, I'll take the tofu scramble. They're like, the what? I'll take the tofu scramble. What do you mean? I'll take the I am hearty house-made tofu. <laughs> like, they make you say it. Like, you oh, have to no, say, I, have I am peaceful. It's, aff- it's about self-affirmations. It's Just give worst. me my tofu fucking scramble. Just, just get it. Just avoid that place. And the place isn't fucking cheap. I was looking at their menu. The, the I am hearty tofu scramble, almost $16. For, for tofu, mashed up tofu and some yeah. vegetables. Yeah. Fucking LA, man. What <laughs> it- <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. Did they get away with it? I really liked the um, the sauces and menus because it just looked like a child had written them down and then drawn yeah. some flowers on them. Very hippie. <laughs> I thought they were cute. Uh, there are rave newspaper reviews. Uh, the newspapers are praising Father Yod, who would teach Sunday morning meditation and philosophy classes at the restaurant. But, but who is this Father Yod? Jim had gone full on hippie. He's just gone from not to hippie since he was released from prison. He had thrown himself into the swinging 60s culture super hard. His business was booming, and with his new influx of cash, customers, and the Hollywood elite, this enabled him to afford to take time out to learn the teachings of the, I will mispronounce the yogi's last name, but you know, it's the, the guy, the yoga dude, who would later be accused of uh, tons of sexual abuse. Yeah, Yogi How'd you Bajan. Say his last name? Famous. Yeah, Yogi Bajan. I, I, only, I don't know him. I just know he brought yoga to us. Um... He would have a profound impact on him that, in fact, Jim is now going to start wearing long white robes and he changed his name to Father Yod or Yahuwah. 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 It's the, the Yahuwah. name of God. That's what they say. Is it? Well, Why would I know that? <laughs> Together with Robin, they cherry picked from the teachings of the yogi and other spiritual leaders, and they even began holding preaching and teaching sessions in the back room of the sauce every Sunday. Well, Jim actually lived. In an Eastern-themed, you know, room above the source. Right. Um, and then he would meditate there, and he'd hold his meetings, and he would read and, and smoke marijuana. And he would, but he would do this all in the presence of his attractive female followers. So the Uggos, they're not upstairs in Jim's room. You know, they're washing the dishes. The hot yeah. ones are, like, smoking weed, and he's reading, like, Yogi Bhajan teachings to them. Ugh. It was just a different time, wasn't it? Life before the internet when you could get away with this stuff. He was convinced, or because maybe other hot girls were telling him so, that God wanted him to have more children, a.k.a. more hot girls should be here. And it was from this restaurant that the Sauce family took its name and they've got their start. Most of the 150 followers and family members worked at the restaurant at some point in time, and they all lived in a 24-bedroom mansion in the Hollywood Hills called the mother house 
all funded by the source. He even rode around town in an all-white Prius. By Prius, I didn't mean Rolls Royce. There are some iconic pictures of the family at this time. And the house they lived in, we're going to talk about the house, is still there, but you can't see anything. Because, again, I Google mapped it, and it's all just, like, tons of, um, like, really high foliage. You can't see in. And that blocked the view. You know, yeah. uh, it's funny when, when you say they, they rode around Rolls Royces. But so Father Yod was inspired directly by his idol, Yogi Bhajan, who also lived in a wealthy mansion, an exclusive part of Los Angeles, with a garage full of white Rolls Royces. And that's kind of part of the playbook. You know, if you think about it, when you're trying to form a cult, you know, you see all the, the, the big actors, directors, and studio executives cruising around in their, their Rolls Royces. So how else can you, like, adopt an air of legitimacy? How else can you prove yourself? You know, the Source family is in weird, because it's the late 60s, you know, it's like, are you going to be like a Manson-esque hippie cult, or are you going to be legit? So it's like, you see Father Yoda in his white robes, and is, uh, you know, hanging out with Yogi Bashan, and uh, cruising around a white Rolls Royce, it's like, this must be kind of successful. These guys are legit. So it's like, if I'm going to join a cult, I'm probably going to join the the Rolls Royce cult, Rather than the uh, you know the, the shitty fucking vanagon that uh, that the hippies are driving in with Manson. That's true. So we're going to talk about the house a little bit here because it's not just some little cabin in the hills. Oh no, it's a like huge Georgian <laughs> style uh, Los Files mansion. It's built in Hollywood's golden era in 1914 by one of the first families of LA, the Chandlers. Harry Chandler was a major 20th century mover and shaker. He's a newspaper man. He's a real estate mogul. He helped build the San Fernando Valley and he helped build Hollywood too. The house sold uh, when his wife and widow Marion died in the 1950s and then the family would just keep leasing it out. The house boasts huge brick chimneys. It's got a two-story entry hall. It's as large as a lobby or a theater. One wing was exclusively designed for guests and staff. And the other wing was for the family members. And from here, it boasts views of Santa um, Catalina Island. By the time Father Yod and roughly 150 of his books and babes were on the estate and surrounding acreage, it was described as the hippie playboy mansion. <laughs> Today, it'll set you back a cool $7 million, which I think is pretty cheap. Well, I don't for that area. How much is the and- murder mansion? The murder mansion is obviously even cheaper. The murder mansion yeah. is like a one or two mil, but that I think that needs raised. There's not much yeah, you can do to save that. Upon moving into the mansion, Father Yod put his practitioners through their paces. You've got your 5.30 a.m. showers. All personal items must be handed over or shared around the socialism happening. And most importantly, you must cut ties with your family if they won't join the real family. You know, he ripped this off directly from Yogi Bajan, who had a, sp- right. you know, a, a spiritual, quote-unquote, boot camp. But that's what Bajan would do. 3 a.m., cold showers, kundalini yoga, you know, uh, exercise, um, a toke of the sacred shin. That's what <laughs> Father Yod would do. And the sacred, sacred shin was hashish, sacred herb, marijuana. Um, Yod's sermons offered wisdom originating from the mystical interpretation of the text that he read. You know, it's like, or even, I mean, it was even as basic as a fortune cookie. Like he would, you know, he would read these things that he felt inspiring. And he would say, you know, if you want to learn something, write it. If you want to master something, teach it. But it wasn't like Very he was teaching handsome. complex original theories. He was, it was no. a hodgepodge of, you know, traditional religion, Eastern mysticism. But it didn't matter. 
I mean, he entranced his worshipers, you know, who regarded him as a god. You know, they, they thought it was God, Yehovah, manifesting through his being. Uh, one Aquarian, uh, one of his wives put it, we knew that he was not the only god, but we also knew that he was definitely a self-recognized and very real component of God. And that's pretty much, if you're a cult leader, that's what you want to do. It is very Munson-y. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, any successful cult leader needs to prove that he's a god, a godlike being to his followers. And he adopted the tried and true methods of any megalomaniacal cult leader. He instructed the family members to cut ties with their flesh families, you know, if, unless the flesh families chose to join them, which they wouldn't. Um, he even, and that's when, uh, and at this point too, because Yod had a lot of different transformations. So he was, you know, when he was at the, uh, at the wear in and even the beginnings of source, I mean, he still kind of dressed, he dressed cool, normally, but yeah. he dressed normally. Then he started, you know, with the Yogi Bajan years, he started growing out the white beard and the robes. At this point, he traded in the white captains for handmade blue, like a wizard's garb. He looked, he kind of looked like Gandalf on ketamine. Like in these That's pictures, I'll post a picture. I'll post a picture of the website, but it is ridiculous. So we're saying Jim has transformed himself into a guru, with the family mixing elements of various worldly religions with health food, healthy living, free love, traditional medicine, music, and drugs being the main philosophy. You dig from its beginnings as a bunch of long hairs, uh, robes, living freely in a house together, eating raw vegetables. It soon bloomed into a full-blown cult. Where it was easy to get in if you were a hot chick, um, maybe the hamburger, the swinger, was named for Father Yod himself because he would have 14 spiritual wives. His wives were in no order, I assure you. This is their names. Um, Makulushla, Makulusha, Isis, Astral, Heaven, Prism, Aquariana, Harvest Moon, Galaxy, Lovely, Paralada, um, Hypaphia, um, Tantalayo, Venus, and then Robin. And they say that kids' names today are fucking stupid. Wait, are these all Come strippers? On. They sound like 1970s sexy strippers, don't strippers. they? Hello, nice to meet you. I'm Harvest Moon. Hello. <laughs> well, you know, My one thing that's lovely. Within Father Yod's teachings and crucial to living a healthy lifestyle, lots of sex. Or as he called it, balling. That's what oh, he, my that's, God. That's totally how he, he was a baller. And he referred to lots of sex as balling. And many of the bald. women that he bawled were underage. You know, I mean, he married Robin, but he mm-hmm. banged many different women. Sex he with did. drugs, sex with single partners, or more, you know, sex with multiple partners, sex in weird positions, sex without ejaculations. If he was into edging, sex with ejaculation, sex that produced babies, sex anytime he felt like it. You know, it was like his life was just filled with sex. Like this was a horny old goat, this man, which yeah, kind of makes sense house. with a lot of cult leaders. Like the reason they want to do it is so they can have sex with everybody. Yeah. And it's sanctioned, you know. Um, but he felt that in order to really complete your, your spiritual awakening, you had to have lots of bawling. Is this why you would join it? You'd be like, I'm here for the bawling and the sacred herb. Dude, vegetarianism, drugs, and bawling. I'm down. I am so into this cult. <laughs> because a lot of the girls in the commune, you mentioned it, they're underage. And to stop the parents from investigating Father Yod, he declared that he decided that marrying them, uh, in inverted commas, is the safest thing to do. 
This greatly upset a lot of the already established Sauce members, male and female alike, but especially his wife, Robin, who now found herself the den mother to 13 very willing spiritual wives. She must have loved Robin. Members of the cult would often use the last name of Aquarian because you know, D, when the moon is in the seventh house and then Jupiter aligns with Mars <laughs> and then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. It's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. That song is so awesome. He, you know, I think Father Yod took that song a little bit too seriously. Too seriously. When the preacher comes in at the end, because you know he's actually a real preacher on that uh, on Age of Aquarius, the song. He's not I a full-time member of the band. He's a fucking preacher. <laughs> And they got him on that tune. Great song. I'm going to listen to it later. This also means that Aquariana was running around LA as Aquariana Aquarian. <laughs> and I'm actually surprised that she didn't become a pop star. It's like Ariara Grande. It's just a catchy name. As mentioned last week, suddenly the name Lotus Weinstock. She's fitting right in with these people. And Lotus was a hottie too. Oh, and she was a member of the cult for a bit. She was. Yeah. She had to get uh, rescued from it. Social historian Eric David said, if he wanted to create a sort of archetype of the sort of ultimately early 70s spiritual cult, you could do no better than the Sauce family. The house band, the commune's improv psychedelic act, which I think is gross, recorded more than 60 albums, each one more unlistenable than the last. The women started dressing like Father Yod. They're all in white flowing robes and they inspired fashion designers of the era too. So if anyone wants to buy me a floor length black Aussie Clark dress, I would never say no. After just over a year of living in the Chandler mansion, the lease was not renewed. Isis Aquarian wrote, I imagine the sight of a hundred young people living all in one house, all wearing white and following around a man who looked like Moses (laughs) might have made some of the neighbors nervous. We were kind to everyone. We kept the house immaculate. Yeah, right. But we were up at 3.30 a.m. every morning for meditation. We played music and we liked to walk around nude amongst other things. She means the orgies there, amongst other things. Sometimes we would see men on the hill uh, peering down at us with binoculars and police helicopters occasionally hovered above the compound. You'd be there with your binoculars. Your well, I'm just saying. Staring at them. I can understand how like neighbors are like, there's a weird cult living next to us. And and these neighbors are like also obscenely wealthy, you know, with these yeah. with the their mansions. So they probably see this. But could you imagine if you're like your father owned one of these mansions, some you know, wealthy studio exec, you're the son, I would be sitting there with a telescope just being like, Yeah, check out all these hot chicks, just walk around naked. I mean, yeah, You'd of course joined. people would be watching with binoculars. Yeah. In March of 73, all 150 or so of them found a new house in Nichols Canyon, which was closer to the Sauce restaurant. The, the beautiful uh, Catherine Denevue, as she had built it, and she'd also left behind her two leopards in big cages in the backyard. It's the 70s. Uh, they called this the Father House. And this is actually a turning point for the hippie commune cult. The Father House period was a new time frame. A shift in energy, said Isis. Well, maybe the shift in energy actually came about because they now had gone from 24 bedrooms to just three. They built sleeping platforms outside on the hillside. They slept in shifts in the attic and in the larger rooms and hallways. uh, They built what father nicknamed beehives or cubby holes, which were wooden bunks built of uh, four by eight sheets of plywood, four feet above one another from floor to ceiling. So they're kind of just big enough to crawl into and sit up large enough for a mattress or a futon. And at the head of the bed, there was a meditation mirror. There was some candles, which seems exceedingly dangerous to me. 
books and if you wanted like you know a couple of pictures couples uh, who were together would simply slide out the d the divider between them and voila it's a double it reminds me of those um uh japanese hotels yeah it, it's at this point i'd leave the cult because <laughs> i'm just like <laughs> yeah. this is a, you know i'm not down with the bunk beds i'm a little too close to the smelly hippies so i'm out of here yeah Outside the father house, Father Yod installed a 13-star American flag to honor the days when Freemasons gave birth to our great nation. And it was in this house where cult member Octavius built a band room and a recording studio in the garage. Fun fact, actually, Sky Saxon, who went on to form The Seeds, a band that made psychedelic blues rock a million times better than anything The Doors ever put out, was in the family for a spell, and he did a number of live gigs with them. It's probably about this time that I would bow out of the cult as well. Because, like, the music's... Yeah, you're becoming a, a music a music cult now. Like, yeah, not they're kind of like a, a psychedelic live rock band. However, I would be stoked to see Sky Saxon jamming with them. Um, and fuck yeah. But all in all, this music... I mean, you weren't exaggerating when you said unlistenable. Like, Kate and I are fans of music. And I'm fans of music from this era. I couldn't listen to this. Like, it's... Yeah. It, I mean, these tracks are, like, 30 minutes long. And they're all, like, drawn out. It's... You know, you get Father Yod who, you know, he would channel his vocalizations, sometimes not even speaking in words, you know, and it was yeah. just basically like a big, long psychedelic hippie jam session with this, you know, bearded yoga master yelling out incomprehensible terms, like nonsense words, really. Uh, the band's debut LP, Kahootek, is steeped in the avant-garde funk and jazz of like, I mean, it kind of sounds like Malcolm Mooney era can. Uh, yeah, but no one near as good as can. No, definitely not. But I mean, just kind of discordant music. You know, th this was like before he did a, this was his band, Father Yod and the Spirit of 76. But yeah, like he had his, his, his wives, the Aquarians, just like all yelling, you know, and harmonizing with him. A bunch of like discordant sounds and kettle drum beats and him just like yelling out nonsense words. It, and it, it's not like it's not like a five minute song. It's like a 45 minute song. Very difficult least, to listen to. At least Charles Manson could write a tune. Yeah, and yeah, carry but, a tune and could play the guitar. Like I he, would be in the Manson family at that point. I'd be like, fuck this. I'm going to go with Charlie. Well, Manson knew how to write a song. I wouldn't say he knew how to write a good song, but he knew how to write a song. He knew how to structure yeah. a song. So by this point, the cult is now more like a band fandom. Each morning after their meditation, Father Yod, alongside uh, guitarist uh, Jin and bassist Sunflower, would perform spontaneous Aquarian age music as Father Yod and the Spirit of 76. They would jam and record for hours the jams were even wired throughout speakers into the rest of the house so everyone could enjoy them. That's like Jonestown. He wired like up his speakers into the fucking huts so you could listen to Jim Jones all the fucking live long day. I'd rather have like crabs and I'd rather be pissing in the desert with Charlie and his boys at this point, wouldn't you? Oh God, no, it's, uh, this sounds terrible. Um, here's, here's a little track just to give you, uh, just to give you a taste <laughs> of what Father Yod and the Spirit of 76 sounded like. It's not good. This, this is a 15-minute track. It's one of the shorter ones. <laughs> God. I'm going to skip ahead a bit. <laughs> skip ahead to the end. 
it up a bit. And it goes on and on like that. And on and, and never ends. <laughs> and that's one of the shorter songs. By 74, uh, Jimmy was declaring himself God. He changed his name to the Yahuwah and he renamed the band to the Yahuwah 13. The albums released under this band name are a bit more rock and roll, a bit more accessible, way less kettle drums than the previous Spaced Out Jam Fest. But regardless, no album that they ever made would secure them a record deal. So they had no choice but to sell their albums in the sauce and they would play gigs in high schools and college campuses, which also is a great way to scout for new sauce family members. Well, my hat's off to them. You know, it's like, sure, they didn't receive any commercial success, but they still kept releasing albums. Like 60 oh albums. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely prolific. No one might be, you know, I don't think anyone but themselves were listening to the music, but he was definitely releasing records. But yeah, Yehoa 13, um, I would say it's that's more, rock and roll. more accessible. It definitely. Yeah. Like, it, it's more rock and, rock and roll. It's kind of like Stonesy sort of, you know, rock and yeah, roll jams. Uh, it has a bit of a more personal tone from Father Yod. So I'm going to play a little clip from, uh, this is uh, the self-titled Yehoah 13 record that came out in 74. It's called Pain. Um, mm-hmm. But you Pretty can tell, pain. like, this this is a little more listenable, Man I would say. He's got a lot of Freemason symbolism on this album. Yeah. He's even he even has the Hebrew letters Yehovah, which is oh, a Hebrew okay. word. Yeah. Th- this music I, I don't I don't dislike. Spirit of seventy six, a little difficult to listen to. This one a, a, a I can understand listening to this. I don't know if I would, you know, if I could find their records, believe me, I'd buy them because they're worth a lot of money. I just don't know how often I'd put them on. Um, this album, uh, Yahweh 13's To the Principles for the Children, which is the last album to feature Father Yod as a lead singer. So here's a track here. Because he, he left the band, but the band kept going, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the universe, in the great not everybody can be a rock and roll star <laughs> no but that's nearly that's nearly post-punk i can i can nearly get into that it's a bit proto yeah, yeah. that's what i'm saying it's not yehoah 13 isn't isn't terrible I think it's yeah. uh, definitely more uh, listenable than his previous it, music. It's probably more of Bower Street than the other, the earlier stuff. So you were saying there's like Freemason imagery and, you know, he's got an American flag flying at his door. He's got couples shacking up in unregulated fire hazard beds. He's got a studio perfect recording room. All of this perfectly reflects the two sides to Jim Baker. 
The family walked a very fine line between a cooperative commune and a sleazy sex cult. It was like, they, you know, it's more upmarket and sexy than the Manson family, who had died many deaths since 1969. It's less socialist than the People's Temple, who were also operating and recording albums in the same area at the time. <laughs> I won't. The next time I'm in LA, we're going to go to the old. The People's Temple Church is still uh, a church. We're going to go to it and have a well, look. It is it. funny how many cults were just kind of operating concurrently. It's like they're almost like gangs. It's just like, yeah, there's a cult everywhere back then. Wouldn't it have been amazing if, like, you know, like in the 1950s when everyone was, like, in the hoods and they would meet up and they would have, like, a musical fight with, like, knives <laughs> and shit? If, like, the Jim Jones and the Manson family and, the and these lot, the Sauce family, had yeah. all met, like, at a crossroads somewhere and just had a big fisticuffs. It's a big cult rumble. Wouldn't it have been amazing? <laughs> oh, if only. So, Father Yod didn't rule with an iron fist, but he did insist that if you stayed with the group, then you had to adhere to all the rules. One man and his son left the group because his infant son was sick and the group refused all modern medicines. Mostly the group kept to themselves. They walked the strip in bare feet, just like Sharon Tate had done many moons before. They smoked a metric ton of their sacred herb and had the really annoying conversations that you'd expect from anyone who refers to weed as a sacred herb. There were also a lot of runaways and missing people in the commune, those who still wanted to tune in, turn on and drop out man. And the police were always dropping by and keeping a keen interest in the comings and the goings of the Aquarians. Octavius said the saucers uh, equated with the Manson family back then. Fear of the unknown is usually a factor. Well, for sure. I mean, the Manson family murders occurred just a few years earlier. And, got and a it bunch terrified. Of... Yeah, and now yeah. you have a, you know, a big group of 100 hippies all living in a commune in, you know, the Hollywood Hills, sure, I would be skeptical. I'd be wary. 51 babies were birthed naturally in the father house, and it would be one of these stupid babies that would spell the beginning of the end for the Sauce family, thus proving my theory that children ruin all good times. One stupid and probably very ugly baby, because all babies are disgusting, got a, got a bad staph infection, and a secret hospital trip ended up tipping off the authorities about what may have been happening in this house. With 150 people squashed into this house, a three-bedroom house, Fabio decided to sell up the restaurants. He's going to leave for a land that wouldn't be so judgy. This might sound familiar because I think Jim Jones is like off, off to one side taking notes. What are you doing, Father? Yeah, oh, I think you're, Jim you're going like, away. That sounds like a really good idea. Hmm. Really? He's on the run from the CPS, local law enforcement, building inspectors, health inspectors, and numerous families that all wanted their children back home. He chose Hawaii to go to, and they departed there uh, in late 74. Jin remembers that it was like a military campaign. Father had to be resourceful, clever, and wise. We didn't have as much money available without the restaurant income, and we didn't have employment until we settled and created or found jobs to keep 144 mouths fed and bodies sheltered. So, like, pretty much all of them were down for the Hawaii trip. Yeah. So I that mean, shows uh, the pull of him. Out of 150 people, you had 144 they were like, yeah, let's go move to, let's move the commune. To, I mean, to he Hawaii. must have been very convincing. Yeah. Favio, he's already low on cash. He misspent money on a fishing boat and an airplane for spotting fish. He's stressed out. He's unable to cope. He begged Sauce members to leave and return to California. Local businesses shunned the cult. They refused them jobs. And the majority were forced to live off welfare. 
it's not going well for them. Well, that was the thing. Like, I mean, he had experience, you know, running restaurants as a restaurateur. But when he went to Hawaii, he's like, nah, we're going to become fishermen now. So we like spent all this money on a boat. These people didn't know how to fish. So, I mean, obviously that didn't work out too well. But Hawaii wasn't very welcoming. I mean, at the time, you know, they they were kind of they were scorned and despised, much like like Manson would be. I mean, there were like these horrible Manson murders that just occurred. Now you got this hippie cult coming over here. So they weren't welcome. They weren't getting, you know, um, lays put on them and uh, by, uh, by, by Hawaiian, you know, tribesmen. Um, but they weren't prepared for, like, the hostility. And I think um, typically they, you know, in L.A., they kind of knew the surrounding. They knew the territory. They knew what to do to yeah. survive. But they definitely didn't have that in Hawaii. And many locals considered them a part of the Manson family, just another cult from L.A. So they thought they were evil. So they, they, they encountered a lot of hostility there, a lot of prejudice. Fabio, he's beginning to wonder if he was only just a man and not so much a god after all. And after an ill-fated mushroom trip, he decides to go hang gliding for fun as Sauce family members were forced to watch on. The 53-year-old who had zero hang gliding experience <laughs> jumped off um, a 1,300 feet cliff. He crashed and he died in agonizing pain some nine hours later because don't forget, this family, they didn't have medical treatment. So he couldn't go to hospital. He just had nine hours of agonizing pain. Yeah, they didn't believe in uh, hospitals or modern no. medicine. But he's a god, and god can, gods can fly, you know? <laughs> um, so this bowl containing the magic mushrooms uh, that, that, that he used, um, he, he had his own special concoction that he would make of, like, this mushroom sauce um, and yeah, you know, he would, you know, he would take the mushrooms, but it was at this point that he started becoming kind of introspective and doubting. I think obviously, because, you know, you move the commune over there, you're failing. You guys aren't able to survive as fishermen. The locals hate you. I think he's kind of realizing like, maybe I'm not a God. And he started telling his followers this, which must've been demoralizing to the cult. He said, I am not God. I'm just a man. I'm a man like other men, which is true. You know, it's, 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 he's actually speaking the truth now. He's being honest with them. But you have these people who believed in you, who uprooted their whole yeah. lives and devoted themselves to you. And now you're hearing like, sorry, not really a god. I'm just a dude, a horny dude. You know, <laughs> I'm a horny old 13 goat. wives, but I'm just a dude. And so what's funny is three weeks earlier, one of the Source family members had set a world record for hang gliding. This guy hang glided for 13 hours. So Father Yod was inspired by this and was like, you know what? I'm going to go hang gliding. Never had been hang gliding before. Chose not to have any lessons. So, yeah, he went and did it. Obviously, he, uh, he, he, he fell. So competitive. <laughs> he He's crashed. like me. It's like, no, I can do it. I can do it, and I could be the best at it, and I'm going to do it. But by the time the family members you know, found his uh, wrecked hang glider and him laying on the beach, he was already surrounded by like police and an ambulance and a fire truck. And he was flat on his back, unable to move, but with a blissful smile on his face. So it almost sounds like it was a death wish, like a suicide mission. Yeah, I get that. You know, I, I think he wanted to move on, shed the mortal, mortal coil there, you know. Um, and the authorities moved in to inspect him, but Baker assured them he was fine, even though he knew his back was broken. And so he, you know, he was in intense pain. And when they asked her, like, you know, um, he was saying, like, I, 
think I should go to the hospital. You know, I'm a dude. I broke my back. I should go to the hospital. His acolytes, his followers were like, well, kind of goes against the source's traditional values here. You know, we don't believe in Western medicine. So that's not going to happen. We're going to take you You're back over die. to the, yeah, we're going to take you back to the, the, the hippie mansion. All right. The hippie house. They even live in a mansion at this point. No Hawaiian mansion. The family remembers uh, that were there that day. They kind of put a positive spin on the untimely end to their father figure. Octavius said, to this day, I felt he was calling the unseen world's bluff. Jin said, it was a shock to all, but perhaps subconsciously expected. He often mentioned him leaving his plane to serve his children less fettered in the next dimension. He's killing himself. I don't think he's going to take care of other children. He's had enough. Yeah, I think he's done. The family did actually try to make a go of it for two long and difficult years, two very long and difficult years, but without uh, Yod's guidance and the anchor of the restaurant as the kind of cash cow, they had largely disbanded in 1977, many of them with no means, and they're in shock after living communally for the better part of a decade. Jin said it was brutal coming back to the system we left behind for even most of us when having wealthy families to go back to because of all the I told you so's and the humble pie that was served. Wouldn't you love that though? If your weird brother came back and you're like, oh, cult didn't work out, did it? He's like, fuck off. <laughs> oh, I'd be, I would be pouring salt on those wounds. I yeah, was, I was totally a hippie would. cult. Yeah? How'd the hang lighting go for your god? <laughs> Jin says, I look back with gratitude, and I feel it was more of a blessing than a curse as a whole. I learned a lot, I achieved a lot, and I see how it prepared me to offer a lot to those who had been born generations after and feel an infinity with them. Father Yod, a.k.a. Jimmy Baker, who was a beast of a man at six foot four, a man who killed two others using his bare hands, a man who print the myth admitted to robbing banks to fund his own organic restaurant biz, was dead and departed for realms unknown. His second ex-wife labelled him as a dirty old man on a lust trip. Others became atheists when they left. Some became the husbands and wives of nine to fives that they always feared they would be. The Sauce family was a spiritual and physical hidey hole for a lot of needy people at the time. The sex and the drugs were probably a nice perk. But like most people who join up to cults, they were just easily charmed by a snake oil salesman who promised them a better life, just like the first sick kids who came to L.A. in the first place. The Sauce restaurant didn't last either. It was shuttered and forgotten by the 80s. In true L.A. style in 2019, a Beverly Hills restaurant, The Gratitude Kitchen, paid homage to the hippies of Hollywood by hosting a $75 plate dinner where CBD doses and wine was matched to the dish. Diners wore the outfits of the day, long white flowing gowns, and they listened to talks from various ex-members. And of course, at least one album provided the ambience. Because after all, those who forget their perverted history are doomed to repeat it. I wonder if that was Cafe Gratitude. That I was talking about yeah. uh, earlier. It, like, I wonder if they're the ones who put this on. I would have, you know, I'm remiss. I missed this one. I, you know, I wish I would have gone. I would have totally have gone to that. Would have been an experience. You know, Seventy-five dollars to eat some mashed yeast and alfalfa <laughs> sprouts. I'll pass it. You know, um, there's a lot of books written about the Source Family. The documentary that came out in 2012 though is really good. It's just called The Source Family. Yeah, I totally recommend it. Um, pretty interesting. Um, you know, I was reading, uh, when I was researching Father Yod, that Eric Erickson, the psychologist, once wrote that when an infant does not get the proper love 
from his parents, mother love, as he called it. A sense of evil and doom pervades that child for the rest of its life. And so when it's in these early days that where trust, mistrust, or alloyed, they don't have that. And so there's like doom throughout, the, throughout their life. If you think about Father Yod, I don't, I don't think he ever had the, the, the mother love, you know, the father figure. So I think he was always searching for something. Yeah. You know, for the rest of his life. And that's why he had like Father Yogi Bhajan and, you know, um, and Zikali and all these other people that he turned to for guidance. But I think he never actually had that. And that's what the the, the primal hope that he was always searching for that he never really fully attained. Not to mention he was a horny old goat. Um, Drag City Records reissued several Yehoah 13 albums. Um, even with some other unheard music from the source members. So um, you should, uh, and I think that kind of came out in 2012 when they released that documentary, but yeah, definitely check it out. Anyway, um, people, uh, this is episode, uh, what are we on now? 874 here of Sick and Wrong? Yeah, 874. Um, we got some phone calls coming up next, 323-522-4032. Uh, right after this brief message from uh, Adam and Eve. Ah, the holidays. It's snowing outside, the fire is crackling, and there's a big jar of unused lube on your nightstand. And that can only mean one thing. It's December. Yes, that time of year that we celebrate Christ's alleged birth with the purchase of a shiny brand new dildo at AdamEve.com. And if you use coupon code DIDDLE on your order, you'll get 50% off your first purchase, three free adult DVDs, and a free gift. Show your loved ones you still care and cram a brand new dildo down their holiday road. Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, AdamandEve.com, and making a purchase using coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E, like priests do to altar boys. Hallelujah. So we've got a few phone calls to get to. You can call the Sick and Wrong hotline here at 323-522-4032, or we encourage you to email us at sickandwrongpodcast at gmail.com. Just record a message on your phone. And yeah. shoot us an email. That's what the European listeners can do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's easy for them to do it. So this first call that we have here is from a Scottish person. Oh, with one right? of Probably I'd say one of the most definitive Scottish oh. accents I've ever heard. Oh. Well, hello, Dean Kate. I'm a Scottish person. <laughs> and I'm funny. I knew instantly this was a Scottish person. Just listen to that, that voice. It's so, it sounds so Did Scottish. You? Did you know? Yeah, immediately. In about the dirty English saying we can't have a referendum. They are not very nice and they don't like haggis and are bastards, every one of them. We... Right, pause that. Can you English get... love haggis. Yeah, I was about to say, can you get haggis at like Aldi or Sainsbury's or one of no. those stores? No, 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 no. Haggis is not a thing you can buy. Well, you can buy like um, the kind of shitty haggis all year long, but you've got to go to like a chip shop to get it. And down south, I don't think that haggis is nowhere near as good as it, as it is in the north. <laughs> as the haggis here? Or like in Scotland? It, Right, vegetarian haggis is nice, but since I turned vegetarian a fair few millions ago, I do miss haggis. Well, first of all, what the fuck is haggis? It's like sheep colon, right? It used to be. It used to be like all the... It's basically all the innards of an animal that they used to shove in like sheep intestine many moons ago. The impacted feces and like the... Like yeah, all, all the, the like good, their... all the good tasty shit. Yeah. 
No, haggis is very tasty. It's not inside a sheep's colon anymore. It's like a plastic colon. But it is all, it's basically tripe. But they deep fry it. You show me something deep fried that isn't tasty. It's all tasty. And they make deep fried Twinkies in Las Vegas. Delicious. <laughs> Why didn't we have them when we went to Vegas? We I feel have. like I've missed out. Astens. I, if I could, I would wave my bobby in the Prime Minister's my face bobby. to tell him that he's no going to keep us down. Hey, <laughs> that's what I think. What do you think? He sounds Indian. <laughs> I thought that for sure he's like from Aberdeen or something. Is this what you think? No, people from Aberdeen. Pe actually, people from Aberdeen sound more fucking English and Scottish. Okay, he's okay, from Dumfries. Dumfries? No, Dumfries is my end. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's borders. I, I don't fucking know. Um, is it is that a thing? And do the, do the English really? Is there like a rivalry between the English and the Scottish, or the English like? Oh no, we love the Scottish people. <laughs> oh my god, what a can of worms you have just opened up. No, but I mean, right, at this I day and age. Like, do they really give that much of a shit? Like, are, are there Scottish people like, fuck the English still? Of course there is. And there's English people who hate the Scottish. But I'm going to say this as a person who lives on the borders. And I've lived on the borders for like 20 years. I love the Scots. And the Scots who live on the borders love the English. There's no, they come and work over here. They go home to Scotland at the end of the day. And I've, I've, I was I've been in long relationships with people from the borders. It's how it is. There's no differential. And also, these are the same people who voted that Scotland shouldn't have independence. Personally, I prefer the Scottish to the English. They have better teeth. Uh, they have better diction. <laughs> they, have, uh, yeah, they, they drink. They, 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 they drink. They're able to comport themselves better cunts. when they drink. Yeah, they're, you know, they're not cunts. Yeah, I like the Scottish. I love the Scottish. I will never not be about them, but I do think it's hilarious that they think they can run their, their country about the <laughs> English. Sorry. Hello, we are there. We support you. All right, now we just Good lost all of our Scottish listeners. Good job there, Kate. Hey, they know I love them. I'm Scottish. I'm my grandfather's the truth to them. My grandfather's Glaswegian, born and raised in Glasgow. Yeah, I fucking, he uh, lived in America his whole life. Mister. My grandfather? No, he didn't move to america till his 40s and he hated it hated every moment of being in north carolina <laughs> hated the food hated the beer hated the people hated like the, the he just thought they were like just really boorish like uneducated people this is what i don't understand how can you firstly hate the food because british and scottish food is trash it's disgusting and like america has pretty good beer I'll, I'll get behind that. Miller. Miller is better, like, better than tenants. Like, I'd, what's he on about? I don't know. My grandfather, I guess, was just... I, I didn't know him. I'm named after him. But I know uh, when he moved here, he only lived here for probably 20 years. He moved here in his 40s. <laughs> before he died. Of before he died. And he just... <laughs> yeah. Like, from what my father used to tell me and my uncle, like he hated America. Just hated being here. And wished he could have stayed in Glasgow. Well, go back to Glasgow, you miserable cunt. Yeah, you don't you, have to I, stay here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if Scottish food is that much better than food in like North but Carolina. It isn't. Oh my god, I'm sorry. <laughs> Since I came to America, I understand all the memes about Britain and Scotland. I, like your food is phenomenal. I don't get what the fuck he. What was he missing? Oh, everything's not deep fried. <laughs> fuck off. Possibly. Anyway, thank you, Scottish listener, with a very convincing Scottish accent. Yeah, for calling very in. Scottish, very convincing. <laughs> all right, next call is from. Uh, the Texas Driver. I think this guy called in, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but here's the Texas Driver. Yo, Dan Kate. This is a driver from Texas. Um, just listened to some of the Patreon and some of the episodes recently about <laughs> y'all's uh, or Kate's hate for kids and then your fascination with your, uh, your nephew, Ozzy. And I've got a... a Story. I don't know if it's a fascination or an infatuation, but yeah, I do like that. I do like that kid. I gotta say. A couple of weeks ago, I guess, with some of my kids, uh, my older daughter, she's the only one in school, and so she's coming home with lice, and we're like, man, fuck, this has happened Ew. once. Before. Lice? Holy that shit! Happens, um, that Did happens we... to all of us. Did you guys you have that? I don't think I, I've actually never had lice, but did you have that when you were in uh, no, elementary school? You they they checked your hair with the combs. Did they yeah, do that. Yeah, nits. Yeah, you will have had nits, D. No kid ever went without nits. I don't recall yep. ever having to use like lice shampoo or anything like that. Sometimes you don't have to. Sometimes you can like pick them out with a comb, but you definitely would have had nits. That was everyone had them as a where a white guy with dreadlocks. That was one of my uh, biggest right, fears. <laughs> oh, what? Having nits? No, getting, like, you go, I remember one time I stayed the night at uh, one of my friends. He lived down the down the hall, and there were a bunch of hippies or whatever. And I stayed the night, and the next morning, the one guy's like, oh, dude, I want to slept on that couch. There was a hippie there that had lice, and I was like, fucking A, because I had, like, dreads. You get lice and dreads it's like a condominium for lice like you, you have to cut you have to shave your head car. oh my Ugh. god I, I was so bob bob marley had like i don't know 60 different kinds of uh lice in his in his yeah dreads. but bob marley is worse than fucking hitler and i'm gonna get into that one day <laughs> yeah but he, he has, deserved like, it what i'm saying is it's like it's a a a, a a place where like lice can breed oh. and spread and it's disgusting it's making me my back crawl. I think whenever she was in kindergarten, so me and the wife like tear out pretty much everything to get washed. And uh, so I have not just one daughter, I've got three. So having to comb through every fucking strand Ugh. of their hair, probably it took four and a half hours for the first daughter. And for the younger one, it took uh, maybe about three hours. And we did it twice in one day. Just staying up. I think we stayed up to like 4 a.m. the The first night we found out, and uh, and then while my wife was doing that mostly because I, <laughs> I was slacking, so she can she can pick up the pace for it because I I didn't want to stand there while. Well, I don't get it. What are you supposed to do? Go through each piece of hair looking for a a lice a louse? Yeah, looking for a knit. That's what you do. Would you guys, and you, guys went, you guys call lice nits? 
Yeah. And then when you're finding it, you could basically like pluck it out and you kill him just between your fingers. It's fucking gross. Oh, that's utterly foul. You can put like you can buy like special shampoo and stuff, but you do have to do it. It's like fleas. I remember my mum's dog. Uh, well, it's my childhood dog, Digger, um, got fleas once, and it took two years to get rid of the fleas. Two they years. Just, to... Well, yeah. Well, like, we lived in a shampoo? big house. Yeah, but when if an animal gets fleas, oh my god, you're kind of cursed because if you live in a big house and we were in a big Victorian house, well, guess what? The fucking fleas are gonna go everywhere. Everywhere it, to every airing cupboard in every carpet, and it took a two years to get rid of them. And that is precisely the reason you get a hairless animal. It's also pre- precisely the reason you never have children. <laughs> My daughter was sitting in the chair for four hours, going through her hair, making sure there was no uh, was it nits or lice or anything nits. like that. Nits. And uh, what? I was at the laundromat actually. I was like, I'm not doing all this fucking laundry in the house. So I go to the mat to He's right. go do laundry and I come back and and then the next day we we check it again. So spend another what ten to twelve hours going. Do they if a kid has lice, do you send him to school with his lice? You're not meant to. Oh, it's a, it, the entire reason that kids get lice is because someone else has sent the kids in with lice but also lice are like they're very hard to spot and they love clean air so technically his kids got lice because they're clean as fuck disease carrying cretins all of them never have children never have them <laughs> both the girls hairs and it's just fucking Ooh. hell i mean sometimes you enjoy having kids but whenever shit like that happens and you've got more than one and it just goes through all of them, like Ugh. getting sick or like lice and going to school. It's just a God, fucking pain in the ass. Back. And uh, just I understand the hate <laughs> or the they're not wanting to have any kids feeling that that Kate shares. I mean, I've got three, and I mean that's it for me. I'm not I'm not gonna have any more of these these damn children Good. running around with all this shit that can happen to them. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Other than that, I mean, keep up with y'all doing. I love hearing every week I get two episodes. And uh, wait, has he got three girls? Yeah, he said he had three girls. Oh my god, mate! Wait until they get cystitis for the first time, because it'll happen. Would you say cystitis? Is that something that happens in the vagina? Yeah, cystitis happens when you have a vagina. What is it? Men don't. That's when it burns when you pee and. Oh, you get like, are you talking about like a yeast infection or thrush or something? No, uh, thrush is a different thing to cystitis. Cystitis is because a female bladder, like our tube. Okay. Wait, a UTI. That's what cystitis is. A UTI, yeah. So our our bladder is on like super short compared to a man's. So that's why, especially um, when you first start your periods, you're more likely to get um, cystitis because you're more likely to like interact like you're more likely to like brush all the horrible bacteria into your uh bladder so all these he's got free chicks they're all gonna get uh cystitis and it's horrible it's painful three gonna happen three words for these women wash your pussy
No, actually, go. don't wash your pussy. Don't. <laughs> Never. No, D, you're giving out butterflies. Keep it Never. clean. Never. No, no, no. Never wash your pussy. If you wash your pussy, then you're going to get um, fresh. Never wash your pussy. Keep it you clean. leave it. <laughs> no, never nah, listen. So, don't listen to this man. But, uh, hey, keep the thinking wrong. See ya. Thank you, Texas driver, and good luck with the, your lice-infested children. Yeah, please don't listen to D. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't tell your kids to wash their pussy. Please, no one. They gotta keep wash that shit pussy. clean. D, D, no. <laughs> what are you supposed you to don't do? Even... What are you never you supposed to take a bath and wash your fucking genitals? No, you can take a bath and you can have a shower, but you never actively wash your pussy. I'm not saying put your put soap inside your pussy. I'm saying wash that never. area. Keep it somewhat clean. Wash your ass. No. Never no. You don't even do that. Like never what, bring don't even any clean washcloth. Your don't bring any washcloth to an area near your pussy. You don't have to. Well, you don't clean your asshole. I don't need to. My asshole isn't dirty. All right, I'm going to have to keep that in mind. Is your <laughs> asshole dirty? Yes. I wash my asshole. When I take a shower, I usually put some soap and a washcloth, and I make sure that shit is clean. What? Why? Because there's probably shit in it. It's not like I'm using a bidet. I use toilet paper, and toilet paper like, just wipes shit all around your asshole. The, the like... The strength of the water just cleans my asshole. I don't need to be like scrubbing at I my don't. asshole. I, I put like my a, I put asshole soap. is delicate. I don't I need to be scrubbing. I put soap on the washcloth. I do a little scrub down there. I wash my balls with a little bit of soap. I don't like yeah, go maybe. inside my dick hole with soap. I just wash that area so it doesn't fucking smell like bo. Well, you can't do that with a chick. You guys like, do have a self-cleaning get... mechanism. I have a self-cleaning mechanism, yeah. and it's going to invite fresh. But I'm saying wash around that area. Bathe every now yeah, and then. It's a good the idea. The warm water does that for me. Yeah. The warm water. Anyway, good luck with the lice-infested kids. Um, people, you can call the Signal Hotline, 323-522-4032. Once again, big ups to all the listeners who support us on the Patreon. We do appreciate oh, yeah. you helping us keep it sick and wrong every single week of the year. God, almost 17 years and running. So uh, thank you for that. Patreon.com slash sick and wrong. Sign up today. Also, if you're looking for that last minute holiday gift, here's an idea. The Tea Public Store. Sick and wrong Tea Public Store. Just go to sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop. Click on the picture of the Pope. And uh, yeah, you'll be magically transported to the Sick and Wrong Tea Public Store and you can buy your nan something nice. Your nana. Finally here, Sick Wrong Song of the Week. We're going to end the show, obviously, with a uh, Father Yod classic. You know, honestly, I I think um, Kate mentioned this uh, while while we were talking about Father Yod. This music's unlistenable. It really is. I mean, it'd be cool to own because it's kind of rare. But I don't know how often you're going to be fucking listening to it. But this is one of the more accessible songs. It's off of... um, it's not his first band, Spirit of 76. It's off um, the second band he did, Jehovah 13. Mm-hmm. The album came out in 1974. It was actually recorded at the Father House Garage. The song is called Come, yeah. Come. Um, the original LP pressings of Jehovah 13, I've checked, are very rare now. <laughs> and pretty, it's, they're just hard to come by. 
um, albums Contraction and Expansion are very sought after. Um, but the rarest is one called Yodship, is Yodship. And that's probably, it's almost impossible to find, but it's also completely unlistenable. Like you can go on, uh, yeah. you, can, you can go on YouTube and you can listen to a lot of it. I, I would, I want to say as two people who collect records and are really into music, like me and you, for us to say that it's completely unlistenable means that. Well, that's and like, thing. yeah, I would like to own this from an outsider standpoint. Like I'm never going to listen to it. But I would own it. Well, that's the thing. I was trying to find a good song that was somewhat melodic to play at the end of the show that also wasn't 27 minutes in length. Because a lot of these songs are just these protracted jams that are just, yeah, very difficult to listen to. I imagine if you're, you know, you're, you're on a head full of acid, surrounded by like topless hippie chicks. Yeah. You'd probably pull out your bongo drums and play in a (laughs) Father Yod song. But just to sit down and listen to it, very difficult. Anyway, Harrison was on a spiritual quest to find the record Yahoo 13, an original pressing of it that came oh, out in 74. Oh, you used to talk about it all the time. Yeah. And uh, we used, I mean, I would keep my eyes open. I mean, if I was in like a, you know, a record store and I came across one, for sure I'd buy it. It's very difficult to find. Don't know how often I'd listen to it. So anyway, we're going to end the show with Yahoo 13, Come, Come. And I'm going to dedicate this one to Harrison. Because, uh, he it. yeah, he shed his uh, mortal coil just a little more than a year ago. I think it was, um, I think it was like December 10th or 11th, actually. December the 10th. Was it the and 10th? It, yeah. So we're going to dedicate this tenth. one to, uh, to Harrison. Rest in power. People will be back next week with episode 874, the Sick and Wrong Holiday Show Spectacular with Wackling Steel. Till then, take it sleazy. <laughs> Baby, she is mine and mine alone. Her like a round, man, there ain't no other. Her heart is mine and mine
Fuck you! Lick my ball! 